Amen. I want to welcome everyone here this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad you're here. You've chosen to come spend this Lord's Day with us. And uh, we pray that the time of fellowship and singing and our time in God's Word will, will build you up this morning and strengthen you in your uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the month, as Jay mentioned a moment ago, so we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, so you can be preparing your hearts for that time of fellowship together with one another and with our Lord. Uh, before we open the Bible together, though, I thought I'd just uh, mention a couple of prayer updates. Last week, I had mentioned how uh, Pastor Paul Blair here at Fairview Baptist Church just around the corner uh, Paul's been battling throat cancer. How uh, He was going down to MD Anderson to kind of get a checkup there, and it uh, came back really good. Uh, they didn't have to do a biopsy, no further surgery, so we're, we're rejoicing with them, and I want to just take a moment here in just a few minutes to pray and just thank God for that. Um, also, uh, Chris McLaughlin, our staff member here at the church, who was in the rollover accident a few months ago on I-35 and uh, fractured three vertebrae in his neck and is up at the Craig Center in Houston and uh, Denver. Uh, this week, uh, Cheryl and I got an exciting uh, text from him. I'm sure many of you did as well. The middle finger on his right hand has begun to move just a little bit. So there's a sign that there's some, the muscles are firing is the terms they use for that. And I guess there's some evidence that maybe in his, his left wrist as well, there's a flexor, a muscle there that seems to be maybe working as well. So these are just slivers of hope, but they're hope nonetheless. And we want to keep praying for Chris and Sarah and pray that God will cause these nerves and the muscles to begin to fire even more and uh, that God will bring about a, a miraculous healing for Chris. So uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer together as we begin our time this morning. Father, we remember the words of the psalmist when he says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Well, Father, we thank you for your enduring mercy. We thank you, you tell us in your word that you are rich in mercy, because Father, we need it so very, very much. And Father, we thank you that in your mercy, you hear us when we call upon you. We praise you and we thank you for this good report for our brother, Paul Blair. We thank you, Lord, for healing him thus far and eradicating this throat cancer. We pray when he goes back in six weeks, he'll get another positive report. Father, we pray that he'll be able to slow down a little bit as the doctors have told him he needs to do and, and, be, and to, to get more healing and get more rest. So we pray for Paul that you'd help him with that. And again, Lord, we just rejoice with Paul, with Cindy, with their family and with their whole church family at what you've done. And Father, we look to you for Chris and for Sarah McLaughlin. We thank you for this sliver of hope, Father, that you've given and just a ray of light that sh shined in upon them this week. Father, we pray that you'd keep it going, that this would just be the beginning of what you will do. And Father, we pray that you'd give Chris physical strength and spiritual and emotional strength. You'd infuse that into him, that you'd just sustain Chris and Sarah, Father, and their family by your grace. And Father, we pray for all the other folks in our church who need your healing hand upon them today. We pray for those who are traveling, that they would enjoy your protection and a great time of refreshment this summer, a time to get away. We look to you for our marriages and the church, for our families. Lord, help us to be humble with one another and to be gracious. Uh, Father, help us to depend upon you and evidence uh, that beautiful fruit of the Spirit in our lives and in our homes. Father, now we commit ourselves to you as we open your word, and we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would be our teacher, uh, that the words we hear today would not just be the, voices, the, the voice of a man, but the voice of God himself speaking to us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7 is our text this morning. Just three verses this morning. It's a wonderful little unit of thought uh, that uh, the Lord will use, I pray, this morning to bless us. Um, I've titled a message this morning, uh, The Lowdown on Humility. Let me read uh, these three verses for us, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. May the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. About four months ago in uh, March of 2019, Senator Lindsey Graham uh, was delivering a rousing speech at a dinner down in uh, Mar-a-Lago down in Florida with President Trump and uh, the First Lady in attendance. And at one point, uh, Senator Graham recounted how his relationship with President Trump had started off in a very rocky way, but it had turned now into a smooth relationship. And he said this, he said, we found a lot in common. I like him and he likes him. Now, if we're honest, uh, we're like that far too often ourselves. Uh, We think too much of ourselves. We like ourselves far too much. And our our self-absorbed culture uh, promotes this inflated sense of self-importance. And we see it everywhere. I think as the the, the anger and the the voices in our culture rise, I think it's often just a a sense of the pride and the self-importance that too many people have in our culture. The Bible's clear, though, that that pride is the precursor to all other forms of sin. It's the underlying cause, really, of all sin. In fact, that the first and fundamental sin was the sin of pride, the original sin uh, committed by Satan, uh, by that beautiful cherub that God had created who became the devil or Satan, was was the sin of pride, exalting self at the expense of God. Read those words in Isaiah 14 on the lips of Satan when he says, I will be like uh, the Most High. And of course, it's the, not only the seminal sin of Satan, but it's also uh, the original sin of humanity. When Satan came and appealed to Adam and Eve and said, you will be like God, knowing uh, good and evil. So since that's true, there's no virtue that's more important for you and for me to pursue and to possess uh, than a humble heart. When you think about it, you and I should desire to be humble above everything else. Uh, St. Augustine was uh, teaching his students one time, and he told them that humility was central to the Christian life. He said this, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are meaningless. So humility is essential in your life and in my life and in all of our relationships. But the problem with humility is humility is not only essential, it's elusive. Uh, Humility is tricky. It's slippery. It's that one virtue that when you finally think you've got it, you've lost it. I love the prayer of D.L. Moody, and by the way, I prayed this prayer for myself this week after I read this, and I hope you'll, you'll think this and pray it for yourself as well. Moody would often go to God and pray, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. That's pretty good, isn't it? Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. 
So I hope that's a prayer that we'll all pray this morning, and that's what our passage is really all about. So to unpack these verses, I've got three simple points that give us what I call the lowdown on humility. The first one is the mandate, the call to be humble, then the motivation, why we should be humble, and then the means, that is, how is this humility expressed in our lives? So let's start with the mandate here. It's very simple in verses 5 and 6. It's a call to humility. Uh, this mandate or command comes three times in one form or another. You notice in verse 5, he tells the younger men, be subject to your elders. Well, the word be submissive means to place yourself underneath. So it's really a form there of humility. Then at the end of the verse, it says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Then verse 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So three times we have this command to be humble. So the main point here is very plain. Humility is essential in the life of a Christian. In fact, we could say that it's a defining mark of a true believer in Jesus Christ. Um, by definition, a church is a gathering of the humble. You'll often hear people say about Christians, you know, well, you Christians just think you're better than everybody else. No, it's actually, actually the opposite. We're people who know that we're sinful, we're fallen, we're in desperate need of salvation. There's nothing we can do to merit God's salvation. We have to cast ourselves completely upon Him and upon His mercy. So uh, the, the church, when we gather together, should be a gathering of the humble. Now, when we come to verse 5 here, it ties in with the preceding context. You'll remember from last time, verses 1 to 4 is all about elders or overseers or pastors. It's about leadership in the church. And verse 5 begins, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Now, some people take this verse out of its context and just have the idea that younger people should be submissive to all older people. But I think the word elders here in the context looks back to the first four verses, young men be submissive uh, to the elders of the church. Now, one of the reasons I think that he singles out the younger men here is, generally speaking, younger men are more impulsive. They can be more headstrong. Uh, sometimes they can be more prone to resist and question authority. So he singles them out here, but really this applies to all believers in the church. All of us as believers in the local church are to be in submission to the leadership that God has placed over a local church. In other words, it's a call to defer to the elders. Now let me just say this quickly. This is not the main point of the sermon this morning. It's a bit of an aside. But I see this as a real problem in churches in America today where people can just move and change churches so quickly where we don't really place ourselves under the authority of a group of shepherds or leaders that we follow. And that's the, that's the pattern, I believe, in the New Testament. I mean, if you decide what you do and what you do and don't like and what you will and won't do, you're not really following the leadership. A lot of people, you know, they follow the leadership, and then the first time the leadership does something they don't like, then they leave. Well, they're not really submissive to the leaders. They're just simply following them as long as they do everything that they like. And if you go to a church for any length of time, there's going to be things that the leaders do and decide that you're not going to like. Uh, that's the way life is. That's the way it is at work and many of the other arenas in which we all live. But the Bible calls us to place ourselves and our families under the, the leadership in a local church of shepherds and pastors who will care for us spiritually. 
and to defer to them. It doesn't mean we can't disagree with them. It doesn't mean you can't even talk to them about things you disagree about, but you come and submit to them, and you submit to them unless they wander off into apostasy or into false teaching. Certainly then you leave. But you defer to them and submit to them, and that's a place of security and safety and growth uh, for us spiritually and for our families. Now, he, he follows on the heels of that and says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, that word clothe yourselves, this is the only time this word's used in the New Testament, and it literally means to put on or to tie on. It was used in, back in that day of a slave tying on an apron to serve. So literally, you could translate this, tie on uh, the, the apron of humility. And th this recalls for us, I think as Peter wrote this, he probably had in mind uh, the, the events of the night uh, before Christ's death on the cross at the Last Supper. Remember back in John 13 and verse 4, it says that Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus literally tied on the apron of humility and clothed himself in humility, and that's what you and I um, are called to do. I like the way one man said it. He said, the Lord never asks, what's your title, but where's your towel? And that's true for all of us. We're to tie on this apron of humility to serve one another. One person said many of us would be scantily clad if clothed in our humility. <laughs> I want to think about that. Uh, the, the Phillips translation has a nice way of putting this. He says, wear the overalls of humility in serving one another. You and I are to put on the overalls of service as we humble ourselves and take the low place uh, to serve one another. Humility is a garment that's one size fits all, and it looks good on every person at all times. There's a, an old story about Cecil John Rhodes. He was a wealthy statesman in South Africa. And uh, one time he had a special occasion when he inv invited a bunch of guests over for dinner. Uh, he and his wife did. And, and there was a young man who was invited, and he was coming to this, this dinner, but his train got in late, and he had to come in the clothes he had on uh, on the train. And uh, to his horror, when he got there, he found a room full of people in full evening dress, and he was humiliated and embarrassed by this. But soon after that, uh, Cecil John Rhodes, this esteemed statesman, appeared wearing an old tattered suit. He'd heard of the young man's problems, and he wanted to spare him further embarrassment. And the person who tells this story said this, Cecil John Rhodes literally clothed himself in humility. It's a beautiful picture of what we do when we clothe and tie on the, the clothing of service uh, to minister to one another. Now, the word humble, when he says clothe yourselves with humility, the word literally means to get low or to be lowly-minded. So it's the willingness to assume, assume a lowly position to serve other people. I mean, it's been well said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's having a, a, a mindset that's God-focused and focused on other people and not ourselves. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, one of the things we, we think about is, well, how do I become a humble person? 
mean, you just sit around and think about how bad you are or, or how you're nothing. I mean, how does humility, how is it created in the heart of a human? Well, notice he says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. You place yourself under the mighty power of God, recognizing who he is. The hand of God in the Old Testament is a, a common picture or metaphor of God's deliverance and power. Exodus 13, 9 says, with a powerful hand, God brought you out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 3.24 says, O Lord God, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as you. Deuteronomy 9.26 says, He brought the people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So humility is the only right response to the greatness of God. So what you and I need to do is constantly be putting ourselves mentally underneath the mighty hand of God, seeing who He is. There's a similar thought in James chapter 4, verse 10, where he says, humble yourselves in the presence of God. So we don't just humble ourselves in the abstract, we humble ourselves in God's presence. It's spending time in the presence of God and it's placing ourselves under the mighty hand of God that gives us a true sense and an awareness of who we really are. Uh, Phillips Brooks, the great uh, preacher from Boston, said it like this years ago, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you the real smallness of your greatness. That's what the Scripture's telling us. When we see who God is, we get into His presence, we see His mighty hand, then we see who we are as well. The old Puritan John Flavel said, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. So it's under the mighty hand of God, it's in God's presence that we're humbled. So the mandate here is very simple. Clothe yourself in humility, tie it on and humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Now, Peter goes on to give some motivation for you and me to be humble, some incentives. I mean, why clothe yourself with humility? Why humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Well, the first reason is, the end of verse 5, for God fights the proud. He's opposed to the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. Now, this is an allusion back to Proverbs 3.34. And again, it's not just that God is opposed to the proud. That's the way a lot of translations say it, and that's an okay translation. But actually, you could translate it, God fights the proud. God wages war against the proud. God arrays his forces against the proud. I mean, if there's one sin that God hates, it's pride. Proverbs 16.5 says this, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He will not go unpunished. Whenever you see a, a politician, a wealthy person, some world leader that's all inflated and they're bloated with pride, you can just put a, a, a flashing warning sign on the life of that person. You can be assured that person will not go um, unpunished. I go back and read uh, Daniel chapter 4 and what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven, which are an abomination to him. It's the seven deadly sins. What's the first one on the list? Haughty eyes. 
So it's a person who's filled with pride. Now notice Peter doesn't say here that God simply ignores the proud or that he avoids the proud or that he keeps his distance from the proud. No, it says he resists the proud. He works in open opposition to them. God wages war against the proud and thwarts them. Pride provokes God to wrath and indignation and it displeases God beyond words. You could put it like this, pride picks a fight with God. And if there's anyone you don't want to pick a fight with, um, it's God. Pride is the most foolish posture a person can ever assume. And by the way, here in the, in the Greek, it's in the present tense. God is constantly fighting the proud, and God is constantly giving grace uh, to the humble. So God fights the proud, but God honors the humble. Just think about this. The infinitely wise, powerful God will give you grace if you're a humble person. He'll bless your life. He'll shower you with his grace and with his blessing. Another motivation he gives, though, is he says the end of verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in order that he may exalt you at the proper time. The way up is down. That's the way God has created it. And when he says that God will exalt you at the proper time, it may be in this life. There are many people that they live a humble life, and God comes along in this life at the right time and due time, and he exalts that person and promotes them to a place of prominence. But we can be sure that for all of us, we will be promoted and exalted when the Lord Jesus comes and we stand before him someday and receive reward. So whether it's in this life or it's in the life to come, or maybe both, God will exalt and he'll lift up those who are humble at the right time. We can be certain that it's coming. Now, how do we become more humble? I want to focus the rest of our time on verse 7. This is a beautiful verse. It's a verse that is well known. It's a verse a lot of people memorize and they can quote. Uh, but it's a verse that's often disconnected from its context, which I think causes us to lose a little bit of the force of its meaning. Well, I think when you see it in the context, its full meaning, it, it'll, it'll surprise you at the power of it. There's an important grammatical connection between verses 5 and 6 and verse 7. In fact, most of your translations, you'll notice that the, the first word there in verse 7 is casting. It's not cast, but casting. So in other words, Verse 7 is not a new sentence. The word casting there is a participle. It's a subordinate clause to what's gone before, and it's telling you how to do what he's called you to do in verses 5 and 6. So it tells us how to be humble or gives us a clear expression of what humility looks like. So a lot of translations uh, translate it this way, and I'll, I'll begin in verse 6 so you can see the flow. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time by casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. In other words, it's telling us the way we become humble and express humility is by casting our cares upon him. So casting your anxieties on God is actually an expression of humility. It's a, the sign that you have a humble heart. One way to be humble is to cast your anxieties on the Lord. Now, what this means is, is that pride is a hindrance to casting your anxieties on the Lord. In other words, undue worry about the future is actually a form of pride. 
So what I want to convince you of this morning is, you know, worry is not good and, and, and it, it, it upsets us and keeps us distracted. And we all know that it's not right, but worry is actually a lot worse than you even think it is. Worry is pride. It's self-reliance. Worry exalts self and it diminishes who God is. So being humble and not worrying are tied together inextricably in the Bible because the root of pride is self-reliance. So worry is pride and it's arrogance. Now in verse 7, the word casting, uh, that word is only used one other time in the New Testament in Luke 19.35. When Jesus was getting ready to ride into that colt or that donkey into the city of Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, and it says in Luke 19.35, they threw their garments on the colt. So they, they threw these garments onto this colt to have a makeshift saddle for Jesus. So that's our word there, that we take our burdens like garments, if you will, like throwing them on a donk here upon a horse. We cast them or unload them from ourselves onto someone or something else. It's an echo of Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burdens or your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. The word anxiety there, some of your translations may have cares or burdens, but it's actually in the singular in the Greek. So it's not saying, you know, cast all your cares and anxieties kind of one at a time so much. It's looking at it as one big bundle. All of your worry, all of your cares, all of your burdens are like one big burden or care, and you take all of it and you throw it over onto the Lord. And notice he doesn't say, casting some of your cares on the Lord, or casting most of your cares on the Lord, casting all your anxiety upon Him. All of your anxieties, cares, fears, worries, and burdens. You're to take them and you're to throw them on the Lord. Now, we need this desperately today because worry is a national addiction in our country. You could even call it a plague. I mean, we see it everywhere. Fear and anxiety hold millions of people in their clutches. The United States is officially the most anxious nation in the world, and it's ironic we're the wealthiest, but we're the most worried. And we hear a lot today about anxiety attacks and panic attacks and people being stressed out. We worry about the economy and politics and health, our kids, our job, money, work, your husband, your wife. Uh, retirement, choices you have to make, what could happen, what has happened, on and on we could go. I mean, worry deals with all of the what-ifs of life. Someone has said that worry is a stream of thoughts focused on the fear of what might happen. One other person put it like this. This is really, really uh, vivid. Worry is is like a a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. It just cuts a channel, and everything in your mind just begins to get drained into that channel. Now, we all have legitimate concerns, and then there's worry. Now, those are hard to distinguish sometimes because the same word is used in the New Testament in Greek for legitimate concerns and then for worry. So there's a good kind of worry and a bad kind of worry. There there are things to legitimately be concerned about. 
But you say, well, how do I know if it's gone from just being a legitimate concern to worry? All I can tell you is I know whenever it moves from one to the other. Uh, the, the old English word that we get our word worry from means to strangle or to choke. Uh, the Greek word means to divide the mind. It's like your mind's being pulled in two different directions. And I can tell you as sure as anything, I know when I go from being concerned about something to all of a sudden now I feel myself being pulled and I feel everything in my mind being drained into that channel and you're just obsessed with thinking about this thing constantly. And it's that, just like that choking feeling again uh, that you have when you're worried. We know what it is. And when it comes, the Bible says uh, you and I are to put it aside you know, 90% of the things we worry about never happen. That's what st uh, statisticians tell us. 90% of the stuff we worry about never even happens. And about 8% of the other 10% is not as bad as you thought it was going to be. Uh, most of our worries are reruns. They're reruns. They're, they're, they're like uh, old movies that just kind of keep running through our mind uh, day after day, month after month, year after year. Worry gives a small thing a big shadow. But if we give God a big shadow in our lives, our worries will begin to fade. And really when you think about it, the bottom line is we worry, and think about this for a moment, because worry somehow in a twisted way gives us an illusion of control. It makes us feel like we can take care somehow of whatever we're worried about if we just worry about it enough. We have this idea that as long as I'm worrying, I believe I can do something about what I'm worrying about. And so again, it's this idea of self-reliance and lack of trust in God. And Peter says, if we're humble, we're going to trust God and we're going to unload all of our worry and all of our anxiety to Him. So a woman one uh, night and uh, sleeping with her husband in bed and he got up and he starts pacing the floor at three in the morning. And uh, she says, what's wrong? And he says, well, he says, uh, I owe Sam next door $1,000, and i got to pay it to him tomorrow, and I don't have the money. And she said, well, just come back to bed, and don't worry about it. He just keeps pacing the floor and pacing the floor and keeping her awake. So finally, the wife gets exasperated, goes over to the bedroom window and slings open the, the window and says, Sam, Sam. And finally, the groggy neighbor next door comes uh, to the window, and he says, what is it? She said, you know that $1,000 my husband owes you? Well, he doesn't have it. The woman turned back to her husband and said, now you go to sleep and let him pace the floor. <laughs> now, that's what you and I need to do with our worries, right? Throw them onto somebody else. Throw them onto the Lord. Now, God doesn't take them, though, and pace the floor. We take our worries and we unload them on him. So we humble ourselves before God when, he, when we cast our care upon him. Because there's two things, there's two choices you and I have with our cares and our anxieties. We can carry it or we can cast it. And that's the only two. You either carry it yourself, or you cast it on the Lord. And to me, this passage here is the simplest recipe for winning over worry in the New Testament. You have an extensive passage in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks there a lot about worry. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, the greatest sermon ever preached, one-seventh of the Sermon on the Mount is about worry more than any other topic. 
Another great passage is Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You know, don't be anxious for anything. All things by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But this is the simplest recipe to win over worry. Take your worries, your anxieties, your fears, your burdens, and throw them on the Lord and trade them in for trust, and then leave them there. Trusting God is the heartbeat of humility and the opposite of pride. The humblest thing that you can do today is stop worrying and trust God. We don't often think about that, but that's the most humble thing you can do today is stop worrying and trust in the Lord. That's the essence of humility. Now, to me, it's interesting here that we have Peter talking about humility because Peter seems to have been a pretty prideful man. Remember right at the very end, the night before Jesus is crucified, Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison or to death. Though all the rest of them forsake you, I will not. Just a few hours later, he hears the cock crow and he realizes how he's failed the Lord. It shouldn't surprise us. Peter was a, a boastful, proud man, but he was also a worrier. Many commentators have pointed out that Peter seems to have been a, the consummate worry ward of the New Testament. He was always worrying about stuff. He was worrying that he was going to drown in the water when he was walking on water, even though Jesus was there with him. <clears throat> he was worried constantly <clears throat> about Jesus paying his taxes. He was worried about who might betray Jesus. He was worried that Jesus might have to suffer and even rebuke Jesus. The very end there of John 21, he's worried about what's going to happen to the apostle John. And Jesus says, don't worry about what's going to happen to him. You follow me. Peter seems to have been the consummate worry ward. And yet here he is telling us how to win over worry. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. He closes with these warming words. I love the end of verse 7. Because he cares for you. That's why we can cast our cares upon him. Literally, you could translate that. He's mindful of you. Or I think the best way to translate it is, it matters to him about you. God thinks about you. So he's saying, humble yourself and trust him because he cares for you. I like the way the Phillips translation puts it. You can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him for you are his personal concern. The Jerusalem Bible says it like this, unload all your worries on him since he is looking after you. Most of you know the name George Mueller, a great uh, German believer who ended up living in England. He lived from 1805 to 1898, so lived pretty much the whole 19th century. But he did a, a lot of great works for the Lord in his lifetime, but among them was building and operating several orphanages. It was a, a huge need at that time in England that he saw, and by God's grace, he was able to meet that need. But he took care of over 10,000 children over the years. And you can think about taking care of thousands of children like that, the burdens and the worries and all the anxieties. But the, the following that I want to read you here is a, a great story about one of his orphanages. One morning, there's 300 hungry children staring at him, and he's got nothing to feed them. Listen to how he tells it in his, in his uh, book. He says, it was time for breakfast at one of my orphanages in England, and there was no food. Not only was there no food in the kitchen, there was no money in the home's account. A young girl whose father was a close friend of mine was visiting the home. I took her hand and said, come and see what our Father will do. Isn't that beautiful? 
In the dining room, long tables were set with empty plates and empty mugs. We sat down at the table with the others, and I prayed, Dear Father, we thank you for what you're going to give us to eat. At once, we heard a knock at the door. There stood the local baker. Mr. Mullery said, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you had no bread for breakfast, so I got up at 2 o'clock this morning, baked you some fresh bread. Here it is. Mueller thanked him and gave praise to God. A few minutes later, a second knock came. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. There was no way to move and repair the cart except to empty it of the milk he needed to still deliver, so he asked me if we could use his milk. We had a wonderful breakfast that morning. On and on it goes, but George Mueller relied on God to supply the money and the food that he needed to support hundreds of homeless children that he had befriended in the name of Jesus Christ. But, but what's beautiful to me about this, Mueller kept a motto on his desk for many years that brought him comfort and strength and encouragement in difficult times. And it was these words, it matters to him about you. It's right here from 1 Peter 5, 7. It matters to him about you. That's the motto that he looked at every morning when he got up as he would pray and take his burdens to the Lord. It matters to him about you as a daily reminder of God's care for him. And he testified at the end of his life that God had never failed uh, to meet his needs. Now, I know for all of us in life that, that burdens can come on us in waves and tragedy can strike. And every one of us here that are older, probably at some time in our life, we've doubted that God really cares for us. We've sat there in tears and saying, God, why are you letting this happen to me if you really care about me? And all of us will be there at some point in life. But these words are an anchor to our soul. It matters to him about you. And the ultimate way that you and I can know that it matters to God about us is that he sent his son uh, to be our savior. God demonstrates his love toward us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and he's already taken the biggest care and the burden that any of us will ever have. And that's our sin burden, our sin debt. He came and he bore it for us on the cross. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. If all my sin has been thrown onto Jesus, it's not on me any longer. And I can have peace and have rest and the forgiveness that God has provided. The Bible says that God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus has already taken from me, he's relieved me of the greatest burden I could ever have, which is my sin burden. So I can trust him then with the lesser burdens of life and know, despite what I might see, that it matters to him uh, concerning me. And you can do the same thing as well. And if you've never trusted Christ this morning and believed that he's the one who's borne all your sins and taken them, uh, you can trust in him this morning and receive him to be your savior, the one who bore your sins on the cross. But we, we rest in his control. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We, we rest in his control, but we also rest in his care that it matters to him concerning us. So I want you to think about this this morning, continuing to carry your burdens and your worries and your cares and your stresses shows that you're really trusting yourself, you're not trusting God. I mean, that's the bottom line. 
It takes humility to trust God and to turn everything over to Him and to trust that He really cares about me, even when it may not seem that He does. Look, our fallen nature is bent to self-reliance. Martin Luther said that human depravity is as man is curved in on himself. We're, we're, we're quick to trust ourselves and slow to trust in God, even though we constantly fail ourselves and God never fails us. So at its root, worry is pride. It's a lack of humility. Now, I know there's some of us here today, and you'll say, well, you know, I just, I just worry sometimes. You know, I come by it naturally. You know, my grandma was a worry, and my mom was a worry. I'm a worrier. It's just kind of a family trait that we have. Well, it may be, but we can dress it up however we want to, but the Bible tells us that at it, it, its root and its core that worry is pride. It's a lack of humility. It's a lot worse uh, than you and I think it is. So if you're a chronic worrier, we've got to be honest this morning and say it's an evidence of pride down in your heart. What does the Bible tell us? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Throw all your worries on Him. Clothe yourself in humility by unloading all of your burdens on Him. Bundle up all of your burdens today and throw them on Him and trade them in for trust and leave them there and enjoy the peace and the relief that God wants you to have in this life. And do it now and do it today. Let's not continue to make excuses for ourselves about our worries. Worry is just a part of our fallen nature to want to rely upon ourselves and keep some illusion of control. Let's trust Him. Let's give Him our burdens. Let's cast our anxiety upon Him, knowing uh, that He cares for us. So I hope that you'll pray this week often, Lord, make me humble and don't let me know it. She'll be praying that often in the days ahead. It's a serious matter for you and for me to clothe ourselves with humility and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, let's pray together. Well, our Father, we come before you and we thank you for casting our sins upon your dear Son, for clothing us in, us in his righteousness through faith in him. Father, help us to cast all of our burdens upon you, having trusted you with our greatest burden, the burdens of our sins. Help us to, to throw all of our lesser burdens on you as well. Father, forgive us for our lack of humility, for keeping our burdens, for think, thinking that we're big enough to handle them on our own, for being focused on ourselves instead of you. May we come under your mighty hand this morning by casting all our anxieties and worries upon you, knowing that you care deeply for us. And Father, we ask now that you'll minister to us as we remember our Lord Jesus Christ and we take his supper. It's in his name we pray. Amen.